0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. An extra edition this week to follow up on the conversation that we had about Macron and France. We recorded a discussion between two of the leading British historians of France, Robert Toombs, who's appeared regularly on this podcast and tells us what's going to happen in France, and John Keeger who's an expert on French foreign policy and is working on a big new research project looking at relationships between French and British diplomacy. And they are going to talk about, among other things, what Brexit means to the French and for the French at a time when the film Dunkirk is getting a lot of play over the channel as well as here, and taking a broader historical view of Macron and what he means for the French state the first voice you're going to hear is John Keiger, and John and Robert started by trying to frame Macron's presidency 100 days in against the long story of how France has been ruled.
1: Well, he's kind of portrayed himself as more monarchist, more in touch with France's pre-Republican days, and he thinks that the French really want to connect with that, and, and in many ways he's Right but he's certainly decided that he's going to run the whole French state and, to a certain extent, the French economy from from the apex. And what he's attempted to do is to to use symbols, to use his power as president of the republic in a way that wasn't used by his predecessor Hollande or or even by his predecessor uh, Sarkozy and therefore he's decided that he's going to replace the upper echelons of the civil service with appointments that will be people who have his view of things. He's decided that the party will be largely on message, his new party. He's decided that ministers won't be able to speak to the press without his say-so. He's decided that um, uh, people in parliament will vote in the way that he expects them to do and for the moment uh, that's happening, although it's beginning to break up a little.
2: French parties are traditionally not very disciplined. Indeed, there's no way of disciplining them, not not an easy way anyway. His new party, or his new movement, is to a considerable extent made up of non-politicians. So far, have they been obedient, or are the signs that their discipline or their unity might be beginning to fray?
1: Well, there are more people from the old parties than, than might have been hoped for at the beginning. Macron wanted to bring in civil society, so he said, but in the end he's had to resort to an awful lot of people who have defected from the traditional parties of the right and the left. The new party then is is one which he wants to keep on message, a bit like um, Tony Blair and, uh, and Alistair Campbell in, in the old days. And What is beginning to happen already is that the members of the party are beginning to say, well, that's not quite how we imagined our role to be. And consequently, at this very moment, they're taking the party to court to see whether the statutes are already being upheld and whether they have to toe the line in exactly the way that's being suggested by Macron and the heads of the party.
2: That seems an extraordinary development, which is unimaginable in British politics, I think. But I would have thought it must never have happened with, in France, at least not within anyone's memory. So members of a political party are suing their own party, effectively, because it's been trying to discipline them, or, or something of that sort.
1: Well, it's not quite suing. They're checking with the administrative tribunals whether the, the statutes of the party would allow them to be a little bit freer than, than Macron is insisting they be. So you
2: talked about Macron's style, and that seems that it's... OK, you said it's sort of quasi-monarchical. It, he wants to decide things, and this has created tensions with a movement which is, at least partly, from outside conventional politics. And you also said that he wants to impose his view on, on the top echelons of the civil service. OK, one can see what sort of a picture is emerging. I mean, is his view likely to be very different from that of the, the state, the, the civil service? I mean, what is his view, as it were?
1: Well, where his view may differ from the the traditional upper echelons of the civil service is that the upper echelons of the... French services have been traditionally state orientated. They're, they're very much in favour of the state intervening. Those are the kind of things that you learn at the École Nationale d'Administration. The state comes in and helps when, when, when problems uh, develop, and that be whether that be in the lives of companies or in the lives of uh, of individual human beings. Uh, the state intervenes, and that's where Macron is not a typical enough, if you like. He is much more in favour of uh, an Anglo-Saxon liberal economics in which um, state companies live and die by, by the market much more than other things. And he, of course, as we all know, he was a banker with Rothschilds and, uh, and used that system to conduct his business. So he is not going to be a totally French traditionalist in, in the way that many civil servants are.
2: So he wants to rejuvenate or, or sort of galvanise the French economy. That's going to be his great mission, I presume. Or at least that's the, the thing he's got to succeed in if, any, if everything else is going to succeed. And the thing he's committed himself to, if I, I, mean, if I recall correctly, the only thing he has strongly committed himself to from the beginning is reform of the labour laws. Now, tell us a bit about what his plans are and why this is significant, and if you think it's going to lead to trouble, why it might lead to trouble.
1: Well Macron is very good at analysing things I think in big picture stuff and he's looked at France's economy for the French state and over I mean he's a young man he's a 39 year old and and yet he seems to be able to really diagnose things rather effectively and certainly he realises that um, the the labour laws are something that have blocked the development of the French economy certainly in terms of employment and as we all know, France has lived uh, with structural unemployment of the order of 7 to 8%, and it's at almost 10% at the moment. He believes that the only way that you can break that that structure is to rework the labour laws, which are extremely restrictive in what they allow companies to do and what they allow trade unions to do and what they allow individuals to do. And he wants to rework those, in particular to free up the 35-hour week, to make people easily fired rather and easily hired, and he also wants to ensure that trade unions are cut out if necessary of the negotiating process. They have been, according to the uh, French laws at the moment, you have to go through a trade union in order for management to negotiate with the workers, and he wants to sort of override that. If you look back
2: at the history of the Fifth Republic, I mean, it sounds as though this is going to be a recipe for conflict you know what happens is is it when someone in the Elysee whether it's Sarkozy or even going back to de Gaulle I suppose decides that some measure is in the national interest and tries to impose it then you get strikes you get demonstrations you even get riots and so on I mean do you think that's likely to happen this time or is has France somehow turned a page partly because Macron is the only person who seems to be in a position to govern at the moment
1: well, I think you're right on that last point. There is a feeling amongst people of left and right and of all political colours that this is almost the last chance before something goes seriously wrong, either with the economy or with the with social cohesion or things of that nature. Macron is, is really our last hope. And so there's a lot of support for him initially, but there's an awful lot of expectation and people expect him to deliver pretty quickly. And there are those who are already adamant that some of the things that he's announced, notably the Labour laws, are not going to get passed. That was a big bone of contention under President Hollande, who was a socialist, of course, and uh, had support in Parliament to pass those Labour laws to a certain extent, although he couldn't get them through. But Macron is adamant that he will get them through. But there is one party, smallish at the moment, but it is very vociferous. It's very active. It's very militant. The France Insoumise, by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, an ex-socialist, who is adamant that in September, in the autumn, there will be strikes, there will be demonstrations, and some of those have already been planned. And there are two trade unions already who have said that they will join them. Whether the students do is is another matter, and whether other movements actually join. But from September onwards, things will get warmed up. Okay, so we might see uh, what we think is a rather familiar picture.
2: But I think your view is that Macron has to do this or something like this because his whole national strategy, his economic strategy, as you've explained, but also his, his European policy, his sense of France's role in the world, depends on the success of, uh, of his economic policy.
1: Well, Macron believes, and I suppose quite rightly, that um, France in Europe is limited by its economy at the moment and by its finances. And that it can't compete with Germany on an equal basis as long as it is in deficit, as long as it doesn't have flexible labor laws and practices that will allow it to compete on the international scene in terms of pulling in large companies from from outside, etc. And also, he believes that in order to be on equal terms with Madame Merkel, he needs To make sure that France does not overstep the 3% budget deficit that the European Commission has set for so many years now, and which the French on two occasions had said they would respect under Hollande and didn't. And this is the third chance now where he said that France would definitely meet its 3%, and therefore will be able to talk to Germany on equal terms. But that means making lots of cuts across the whole of the French economy to hit that target.
2: Of course, the cut that so far has made the most impact or caused the most controversy is the cut in the military budget. And here, I think, you know, we can see a contradiction. On one hand, his view of France is of a, a great power, a global power. He He said in his first address after his election, if I remember rightly, that the world is waiting for France, or words to that effect. France has to be a great power. This is traditional Gaullist view of the world in a sense. But one of the first things he's done, or the first cuts he's announced, was a huge cut in military spending. So on one hand, France is supposedly committed to increasing its defence spending to reach the 2% that NATO aspires to. And on the other hand, he's got to cut back the state budget to the 3% deficit that The EU requires. There's clearly been a contradiction here, and it's caused. Perhaps is it? I mean, would you agree? the The first big row of his presidency with the army or with the chief of the defence staff.
1: Yes. Well, he does believe, and he keeps insisting, and it's almost a Trump slogan that France is back, and France will be back economically, France will be back internationally, and France will be back in terms of defence, notably. So uh, this row that has developed with the chief of the defence staff is an important one. It's an important one because the French army is committed at the moment abroad in in a host of areas, from Mali to Europe to uh, a number of places in Africa. And um, the French army is a fairly popular organisation in France, or at least it has been over the last five or six years. And to lose the chief of the defence staff, the first time that has ever happened, one resigning during the Fifth Republic, and even before, uh, is considered to be a terrible mistake on his part. He's rectified it very quickly by appointing somebody, a young person to replace them. But um, the damage is done. And whether he will be able to meet the other targets that he set, like two percent of spending for NATO is is going to be very difficult. So what happened, tell me if
2: I'm wrong, is that just before the fourteenth of July, was it, he he has a meeting with senior generals. Did he then announce that there was going to be a cut of eight hundred million euros from the defence budget? And then the general General De Villier, the chief of staff Protested was that it publicly and then and then resigned. What, what I can't remember quite what happened.
1: No, he didn't protest publicly. He went before a parliamentary commission, the Defence Commission, and in that Defence Commission, which was in secret, it was a you know a reserved, confidential uh, questioning of the Chief of the Defence Staff. It was
2: leaked, was it? Or? it
1: was leaked afterwards. He said that um, he wouldn't put up with defence cuts of that order when the defence bu- budget had already been cut several times.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think this brings us on to the whole question of France's view of itself in the world, if I can generalize like that. Macron is, after all, as we know both an insider and an outsider. To some extent, he's come through the system. He's part of the French elite, without a doubt. And yet he's a man who is setting out to reform it. I mean, to what extent does he share, you know, the Gaullist view, the traditional view of of France's role as leading European power, independent voice in the world? And how do you see this playing out? I mean, what are the things he has to do? I mean, you've mentioned has to cut the the, the, the deficit in order to to stand up to Merkel or at least be, be seen as an equal uh, interlocutor with the Germans is that is that number the number one objective would you say
1: yes I think it is I mean you say that Macron is a traditional product of the French elite he he is in some of the institutions that he's been educated at but he's done it in a in a different way he went to Sciences Po, which is the first stage of the French elite, then he went to he went to the ENA. but he attempted to get into Normand Sup, the Ecole Normale Supérieure, which is one of the other elite training academic establishments that he failed to get into. He also studied philosophy at the University of Nanterre, which is, is something slightly different to the kind of things that the traditional administrative elite do. So in that he's got a, a slightly different gloss to the way that he imagines things. But he is wedded, as you say, to the, the Gaullist idea that France can only be France if she's in the front rank. And on the international stage, he believes that, uh, that France can do that. She has all the assets to do that. She's a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. She's a, a leading member of NATO. She's a leading member of the European Union. Uh, she's a, the fifth largest economic power and therefore should be, should be punching much more above her weight than she's been doing over the last 10 years or so
2: and I guess that brings us in a way to relations with Britain and the whole question of France's response to Brexit after all there's always been a rivalry between France and Britain as to who is the the sort of top dog in Europe I suppose at least in terms of its its global policy And both countries have tended to believe that they were the ones who were the the more important. Now, we're leaving the EU. That's a kind of challenge to France's view of the EU and its future. But it's also an opportunity for the French, I would have thought, to assert their position as Europe's leading global force. I mean, how do you see
1: it? Yes, it's both of those things. And I think he's he's very aware of that dichotomy, uh, that... um, if Britain leaves, then it does leave France as the, the only large international voice and power within the European Union. Assuming that the Germans remain fairly passive, as they have in the, well, the past. Well, the Germans still won't have a, a seat at the UN. The Germans won't have the nuclear Bomb. There, there are a number of limitations that they have, and there are still restrictions on the way that they can operate abroad. Yeah. So he knows that he has those assets in in his bag. The problem, of course, is is how he will deal with Germany afterwards, because Britain leaves, he becomes top dog, but he's still got to deal with Germany within the European Union, and that has been over the very long durée, if you like, France's great. Uh, issue the german problem which to a certain extent may surface in that uh, it won't be so easy to push madame merkel around if she's not if he's not got on occasions britain to side with him on particular issues and i think that's where he realizes that france has got to be really strong in order to be able to compete and uh, And face off with Mrs Merkel.
2: So it's a real conundrum, because on one hand, France has got to be performing better economically and financially to be equal to the Germans, but it's also got to spend more money on defence if it's going to be, as it were, equal to the British and assert its role to be the leader of European global policy. Those two things are opposites, and we've already seen that they clash. And also, I mean, something we haven't touched on, which I'd like you to say something about, is that our defence relationship with France is extremely close because neither Britain or France can easily pay the cost of being Europe's great powers. And therefore, the the defence industries are quite closely interlocked in producing defence equipment and so on, planning a new fighter, building aircraft carriers, whatever. And so to what extent is this threatened by Brexit? Or would it continue
1: whatever happens? Well, I don't think he believes it's threatened by Brexit. And he's made a number of speeches along the lines of saying, well, okay, Britain is leaving the European Union, it's leaving, it's leaving the Commission, it's leaving those kind of things. But Britain will continue to be perhaps our closest defence partner uh, on a number of things. We, we, London and Paris, are the only ones who can operate internationally in the way that we do and that won't change and therefore there must be some kind of agreement you know things like the san malo agreement and, and other agreements that there've been in the past those kind of things can run parallel to the existence of the the european union they're not necessarily part of the european union there isn't after all a fully formed integrated defense and uh, security policy of the european union that's in any real shape
2: Well, logically, that might lead the French
1: to facilitate an easy Brexit. But do you think it will? Uh, No, I don't think that's likely to happen. I think they're going to, to use the term, uh, cherry-pick parts of the, the way Britain departs. Some of them they will ease, some they'll be tough on. I think they'll probably be tough on finance, for instance, and in order to pull over to Paris some of the financial institutions from the City of London. Um, but there, the, there is a feeling uh, as well amongst. There's, there's a kind of competitive feeling, a kind of sport feeling, a, a feeling that this is some kind of sort of rugby match, or uh, that the British are the the people to beat. You know, lots of people say to me, look, John, you you know, it's going to be tough and, you know, you're going to bargain hard and everything like that. But, you know, we really, you're the team to beat. We want to show that we can do it, whether it be somebody in a bar or not. They say you'll probably come out all right, as you always do. But, um, you know, we're going to give you a, a hard run. And you hear that across all sections of French society. And I think it's I think it's not a new feeling. I mean, you more than anybody, Bob, uh, will know uh, Anglo-French relations going back over over many centuries, and that competitive spirit between the two countries, I think, is is not something that's new. Okay, there's this competitive spirit
2: which I absolutely agree with. I mean, we've all, we've, been, we've all been watching this film of Dunkirk, including people in France. Uh, Dunkirk, often seen by the French as kind of betrayal, the British once again making for the open sea. Do you think Brexit is seen to some extent in, in that light? You know that not everyone knows, though many people, in, I think most people in France seem to know, de Gaulle's report of a conversation with Churchill, when Churchill's supposed to have said, whenever we have to choose between you and the open sea, we'll choose the open sea. And there's a sense of the British always being willing to Leave the continent, or perhaps abandon France at times of difficulty. Do you think there's any anything of that that plays over into the this idea about Brexit as a kind of contest between France and Britain?
1: Yes, there is a little bit of that. I think that's beginning to emerge in in many ways. I went to see that Dunkirk film only the other evening with with a bunch of French people, and and some of them said, you know. Uh, have you set this up to, to say that this is, this is a sort of symbol, if you like, of, of what's happening? You're withdrawing into your island again, as you did in 1940, and, uh, and you're going to just leave us here with the Germans. Ah. So, so uh, there is a little, a little bit of that. Um, I mean, as, as an individual in France, I feel slightly embarrassed. I feel a little bit that we are leaving people in the lurch uh, a little bit but that's the only sort of sensitive note i have although i i was a remainer as you know yes. uh, i was a remainer but um, a critical remainer uh, but as you many think there's people- real
2: resentment okay you you talked about this sort of sporting spirit of you know this is our chance to get one over on the brits as it were but is there a sense of anger resentment at all well about, it
1: depends but who you speak yeah. to but sometimes it does come out i mean the french are quite gallant in the way they'll they'll take on the english argument and say okay well you've done perhaps what we would have liked to have done you know go it alone a little bit or not be entangled in all of this brussels mess those are some of the things we'd quite like to have done but you are leaving us all, all on our own and uh, this is a trait that's beginning to to show huh. you can't get away with it forever Yes. You'll lose your friends, <laughs> assuming that the French are our friends. <laughs> yes, perhaps. <laughs> well, I think they are deep down. But um, even Macron. Uh, yes, I think he. I think he is is quite Anglophile, at least in a lot of lot of things. I mean, I'd be interested to see what currents in in philosophy he was interested in. But um, the sort of British empirical stuff, maybe. But he's anglophile, I think, in, in terms of how the state works. You know, monarchy is not something that he he finds obnoxious, like uh, some people do in France. Uh, I think he's in favour of liberal economics. I think he's uh, in favour of a good deal of flexibility within, within the economy. And um, he looks across the channel and see that sees that to a certain extent that works in certain parts anyway in the city of london and of course he's been a product of large international banks and so he's rather admiring of all of that i think i don't think he holds on to it too much but uh, he thinks that it does work
2: and he's probably the best english speaker of any fifth republic president yes, he's, he's very good one final point Talking about the Anglo-Saxons and speaking English might make us think that the person he has made most efforts to show himself as close to has been Donald Trump. I mean, it would be fun to point out some parallels between Macron and Trump, perhaps. But in this case, his invitation to Trump to attend the 14th of July celebrations, quite a quite a, a powerful gesture, which apparently didn't cause any great upset in France. I mean, imagine if Theresa May had invited trump to to attend the trooping the color or you know some great nationals there would have been crowds in the streets there would have been protesters everywhere you didn't seem to have got that in france at all is that because the french quite like a sense that they're now being taken seriously by the americans even if it's trump who's actually the person who's
1: doing it well all new presidents of france certainly in the last 20 years have all made as one of their first steps a gesture towards the United States of America that tends to wear off after a little bit but they, they make that gesture to begin with The second thing to say is that, of course, the visit was planned well in advance of Macron's victory, because it is, in fact, to celebrate the Americans' beginning of the liberation of Europe during the First World War from 1917. And Macron, every time there was some kind of protest, there was never very much, every time there was some, he said, well, you know, Trump is coming as the representative of the American state to participate in the celebrations that allowed the uh, First World War to be won by the Allied side, and therefore we must respect that. It's not Donald Trump that we're celebrating, we're celebrating something else. Mm. So he's packaged it quite well. There have been some protests, and there were a few protests in Parliament by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is now becoming the sort of official opposition in, Mm. in virtually everything.
2: Yeah, perhaps a sense that France is going to be America's main interlocutor in Europe
1: that's another benefit of britain leaving the european union macron is quite aware as obama pointed out that if britain does leave the european union then britain will not be such a close intermediary for the united states of america to speak to europe and to get europe to do certain things that now can be france if it isn't going to be germany but that's the big competition that goes on and will go on for for several years i think so a huge List of things that Macron wants to do
2: on the world stage in Europe, in reviving the economy, and all depends on him. Do you
1: think he's going to succeed? Well, he's he's bet a lot on himself. I think he portrays himself as Jupiter. He talks about verticality in everything. He talks about the monarchy in an unembarrassed way, and he talks about the the head of state taking his responsibilities and and doing things properly. But I think the big decider will be the economy. If the economy does well, he can reduce unemployment, he can reduce the deficit, he can get on with Merkel, he can finance the French army, he can do a whole host of things. And and it will be the economy, it seems to me, that will be his saving grace. It won't be how much he has support in Parliament or anything like that. The French people will go along with it if unemployment comes down, and certainly if the if their the wages in their pockets grow.
0: Thank you very much to Robert Toombs and to John Keiger. Our regular episode next week will be Helen Thompson, Glenn Rangwala and Chris Brook telling you about their summer reading. And we'll be putting out another extra edition of Talking Politics next week with Aaron Rapport in conversation with the psychologist John McGowan about Trump and how people think. Do have a look on Twitter at Podcast underscore for links to all the articles and books that are going to be discussed in the next few weeks. Do join us again next Thursday. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Yeah.